This is part two of our two-part podcast on red flag headaches with Dr. Amit Shaw and Dr. Roy Baskin. Welcome back, gentlemen. It's time to talk about some more red flag headaches. Great to be here, Anton. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. Thanks to the more than 500 folks who came out to the virtual EM Cases Summit and to all the amazing speakers and organizers, I learned a ton and I hope you did too. It was so inspiring and enlightening. Now, if you missed it, no worries. You can purchase streaming access to all the talks for the next three months at emcasesummit.com. Let's just jump straight into a case. A 25-year-old woman comes in three weeks postpartum with a gradual onset diffuse headache over three to four days. This is dissimilar to any headache she's had before. She reports that when she was chatting with her husband earlier that day, her husband's words became jumbled and she had to ask him to repeat himself, which she never really had to do before. She had no visual changes, no speech difficulty, no limb symptoms, no numbness or weakness. On exam, she looked well, vitals were normal, GCS 15, she's alert and oriented, and her screening neuro exam was normal. So, We've all seen pregnant patients get really sick with medical problems, and inevitably, they're very complicated to manage, whether we're talking about the brain or the heart or what have you. Dr. Shaw, what's on your differential diagnosis for headache in the peripartum patient? Anton, let's talk about the life-threatening diagnoses first. So, uh, you know, the first thing that we want to remember is that Just because people have delivered, they're not out of the window for preeclampsia or eclampsia. So we have to check their blood pressure, check for proteinuria. It doesn't take a dramatic blood pressure elevation to make the patient at risk for preeclampsia or, of course, eclampsia is the end result of that syndrome with seizures. And even in the postpartum period, women are still at risk of this most so in the first 48 hours, and then diminishing risk after that, but they still can be at risk even for several days after delivery or a couple of weeks. So that's the first thing we want to think about. Other conditions, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, because pregnancy is a hypercoagulable condition. So that's something we have to keep on our radar. Strokes can occur afterwards. Of course, most strokes don't cause head pain or headache. You can have rare conditions such as pituitary apoplexy or press or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. And then other common conditions that occur for pregnant women that are less life-threatening or non-life-threatening. Of course, migraine, a very common cause of headache and increased risk in the peripartum period. You can get postural puncture headaches, and those are usually seen within five days of the epidural around delivery. 
they have certain clinical features that would make one hone in on that diagnosis. Uh, first of all, the patients had an epidural. It tends to be worse when they're sitting or standing and uh, tends to be better when they're laying down, so a very postural component. And of course, tension and other common headaches. The peripartum period is when people are sleep-deprived, lots going on, and there's lots of reasons why they may have tension or other non-severe headache syndromes. Great list. Okay. And could you just remind uh, the audience what press syndrome is and pituitary apoplexy? That Those are both pretty rare things that we hardly ever see, but just to remind us what those ones are. Yeah, so press syndrome is generally associated with hypertension and it occurs, uh, it's thought because of a disorder of autoregulation of cerebral circulation in the posterior portion of the brain. So that uh, generally is a disorder of the parietal and occipital loads that, uh, lobes that presents with headache, altered mental status, vision changes, and even seizures. So it's something that uh, presents fairly dramatically from a clinical standpoint. It's more common in patients who have hypertension in their past history. It uh, can be misdiagnosed as eclampsia in the peripartum period. And generally, you, you, although you can see changes sometimes on CT, it's diagnosed with MRI. It may be useful just to think about press as a form of eclampsia. They both have a similar mechanism, and there's probably a sort of a continuum and an overlap just as a way to, to understand it. All right. And that's press. What, what about pituitary apoplexy, Dr. Baskin? Pituitary apoplexy is a hemorrhage into the pituitary gland. It's extremely rare. I think it can occur in the postpartum period because there's an enlargement of the pituitary during pregnancy. And then in the postpartum period, you can have a hemorrhage into that enlarged gland. And the symptoms could be pain from the bleed itself, endocrine failure from loss of function of the pituitary gland, and or local symptoms coming from affectation of the cavernous sinuses on immediately on either side of the pituitary fossa. I think this is something that you're going to pick up on a CT, which is sensitive to blood, if attention is directed at the pituitary, which sometimes it may not be. People are only looking at the brain, um, so the radiologist has to be alert all right, so that's a little bit about what pituitary apoplexy is and press syndrome and a great list of diagnoses to consider in the peripartum patient who presents with a headache. And I think it's really important to stress that one pitfall that we talked about in part one as well is to be very careful of diagnosing a patient for the first time with a migraine headache that just like migraine headaches can have several similar symptoms to a neck dissection, migraines are quite common in the peripartum period, but don't assume that every patient that presents in the peripartum period with a headache is a migraine. I want to dive deeper into cerebral venous thrombosis, which can be a very difficult diagnosis to make in the emergency department. I think it's useful to understand a bit about the pathophysiology of cerebral venous thrombosis, and that'll help us understand a bit better how it presents and how it's treated. So Dr. Baskin, can you give us the sort of quick lowdown on what's happening in the brain with cerebral venous thrombosis or CVT? Sure. So this is just a DVT of the brain. Okay. So I, I think just the word sinus is sometimes confusing. The veins 
in the brain are called sinuses, like the cavernous sinus, dural sinuses. But we're just talking about veins, and we're talking about thromboses that occur within those veins. I guess unlike a DVT, on the upstream from the thrombosis, you're going to get congestion, venous congestion, and then venous stroke. So you get pain from tension on the blood vessel where the thrombosis is. You can get pain from the increase in intracranial pressure because CSF is absorbed through the arachnoid villi, which are in close association with the venous sinuses. You get pain from increased intracranial pressure. And then you can get stroke symptoms um, either from ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes. So since you're blocking venous outflow, you can either get ischemia to the tissue or you can get hemorrhage into the tissue or both. And these strokes are not going to follow the pattern of the typical arterial distributions that we think of. As uh, Amit pointed out, the third trimester of pregnancy and the postpartum period, a um, hypercoagulable state predisposes to venous sinus thrombosis, as does uh, exogenous estrogen. Sure. Dr. Shaw, the risk factors for CVT, I understand they're basically the same as those for PE and DVT. Is, is there anything else we should know? We're, we'll, we'll talk about COVID a little bit later and COVID vaccinations and their association with, uh, with venous clots. But what, what do we need to know about risk factors for CVT? So, Think about DVTs first, so birth control pills, pregnancy, uh, genetic thrombophilic conditions, cancer, local trauma to the region that um, uh, can predispose you to uh, clot formation, and then also local infections, so head and neck infections in that region can then predispose to local thrombosis. If people are on drugs that are making them thrombophilic, then that can also be a risk factor. And then, of course, as you mentioned, COVID-19 itself and COVID-19 vaccination with AstraZeneca. In terms of a patient who comes in who, let's say, has recently had COVID and they come in with a new headache, you're, you know, how much does that weigh into your decision of whether this could be a cerebral venous thrombosis? Well, I, I think you guys probably know much more than me, but I think headache is a very common symptom in COVID. Uh, the first person I know have known personally who had COVID was an emergency room physician, and he said he had the worst headache of his life as the um, cardinal symptom. So I think this is going to be an extremely rare cause of headache in a COVID patient. Most people who have a venous sinus thrombosis that's causing a significant problem will have raised intracranial pressure because of reduced venous outflow from the brain and therefore will have papilledema. So a good bedside test, if you think that there is a venous sinus thrombosis, is to look for papilledema. And I think this goes back to our discussion in our previous uh, episode um, when we were talking about Horner syndrome, you know, it's important to look for Horner syndrome in a low light environment so you can properly see the asymmetry of the pupils. 
And um, it's important if you're going to look for papilledema to do the examination properly um, in an environment where the pupils are going to be big enough to look into. I know from speaking with Kirsten DeWitt, who's an emergency physician and a hematologist and a thrombosis expert, that we can approach patients for pulmonary embolism who have COVID the same way we approach patients who don't have COVID and go through the same sort of decision tools and they work well. Do you think sort of the same can be said for cerebral venous thrombosis? I mean, again, how much would a patient having COVID kind of sway you towards this diagnosis? Would it, would it make much of a difference to you, all other things being equal? The uh, incidence of headache, as Roy said, with COVID-19 acute infection is very high. You know, headache is a very common clinical feature, and we wouldn't be doing CT venograms on everyone who's presenting with a headache. This leads into the discussion of if we're approaching cerebral venous thrombosis as a DVT of the brain, where does the dimer sit into the diagnostic pathway? And where would you use that if you're trying to risk stratify someone who has no neurological symptoms. Let's accept that if someone presented with neurological symptoms and recently had COVID and had a headache, you would probably be thinking about this diagnosis. And we'll talk in a moment about some of the clinical features. But if they have neurological symptoms, it sort of makes it easier for us. Then we know we're going to be doing some testing. But it's the patient who has isolated headache that is problematic for us to decide, are we going to subject them to that brain radiation? And I would say that if they simply have headache and no other symptoms and they have no papilledema, then you likely are not going to be imaging them or pursuing this diagnosis. And you may throw in a dimer depending on your discussion with the patient and your pretest probability. Excellent. We know that the veins most commonly clotted up are the superior sagittal sinus, which runs along the top of your brain, kind of splitting the brain into two hemispheres, and the transverse sinuses, which sort of wrap around the occiput on each side. We see them quite clearly on uh, the axial CT images that we're, we're looking at all the time. The presentation is going to vary depending on where the clot is, uh, just like everything in neurology. But... Are there any sort of helpful ways of thinking about the clinical presentation? When, in other words, should we be considering this diagnosis? I would divide these patients into two groups, headache and headache plus. So the headache-only patients are the most challenging. They're the toughest to diagnose because isolated headache can be caused by so many things, and most of those things are benign diagnoses. So we want to think about the diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis or, or cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, as you might see it referred to, first of all, in people who are at high risk of clotting. So the first thing to do is in your history, when you see people with headache, is think about their clotting risk. And if they have a thrombophilic disorder, for example, they tell you that they have factor V Leiden and they're supposed to be on warfarin and they don't take it and uh, and they present with progressive, worsening, severe headache that they've never had before, hmm, then you better consider it. So thrombophilia is an easy and quick question to ask that we're very used to asking uh, all of these questions for DVT. Keep that in mind for your headache questioning, and you can easily use that to risk stratify. Ask the patient about these other features that we see 
that we've already discussed as red flag features. Are they having multiple progressive visits? Is this a brand new headache? You should keep this diagnosis on your radar if they're having lots of red flag symptoms. They're vomiting, they're describing neurological symptoms or visual symptoms. So once they start to describe those things, they then move into the headache plus. They've got a headache and they've got some concerning features or red flag features that are pointing you somewhere on history or physical. So those patients are a little bit easier to say, okay, I need to do something. And then you have to decide to yourself, do I need a CT head and neck angiogram or do I order a CT venogram? Because you can't get both. So when you're trying to make that decision, you want to look at features such as physical examination of papilledema, as Roy mentioned. And, you know, I've heard talking to residents and uh, clinicians, some people make examining for papilledema as part of their practice, and other people say, yeah, gee, I always have a tough time seeing the disc. So, you know, some key points, uh, as Roy mentioned, are that you want to do this in a darkened room and give yourself the best chance possible. You want to do it in a bunch of normal patients and make it part of your headache exam so that you know what normal looks like. And if you are really having trouble looking and you are concerned about the diagnosis and you'd really like to know what the disc looks like, you can dilate the pupil. Now, if you dilate the pupil, make sure you give the patient a note so they don't come back in and then I see them six hours later and I think they have Horner syndrome. So so <laughs> don't dilate the pupil and then not make a note of it and tell the patient. But dilating the pupil is easy to do with some homatropine drops and you can look at the disc and have a clear idea of whether that patient has a fuzzy, indistinct looking disc or it looks like he, they have a clear disc margin. Because that'll help you, particularly if you're in a resource limited setting, that you're not able to send the patient unless you have some hard findings to justify a long transport. Uh, so papilledema is an important thing to look for. And then think about some of the other clinical features that you might see with various syndromes. And so that, that would include isolated elevated intracranial hypertension, which will give you possibly some postural changes where the headache is worse with laying down. They may have nausea and vomiting. They may have some visual symptoms with it. You can also have focal syndromes with focal neurological deficits. You can have a diffuse encephalopathy, and then you can have some very specific syndromes if particular sinuses are clotted. Yeah, I think it's useful to just kind of think about this in a very simple anatomical way and kind of compare and contrast it to arterial dissections. So I think we're talking about venous thrombosis here, and we spoke about arterial dissections in the last episode, because these are both causes of headache that aren't coming from a problem readily seen on a CT scan of the head and the brain. They're both vascular abnormalities. And they both are causing pain from a problem with the blood vessel. Remember, the brain is insensate. It doesn't have any sensory organs in it. So the pain is coming from either the arterial dissection itself or from the venous clot itself, distension of the vein. So in both cases, you can have just headache. And in both cases, you can have stroke, either arterial emboli from the thrombus sitting on the torn vessel in the artery or in the case of a venous sinus thrombosis, from venous congestion in the brain tissue. Cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is by far a more dangerous condition because 
whereas the arterial dissection can or can't throw little emboli that may or may not last, here you've got a clot that's blocking outflow from the brain, and the risk of stroke is much higher. There's also a risk of hemorrhagic stroke. So I think that's like a very good way of thinking about it. And I think, as you mentioned previously, Anton, the eyes are a great way of seeing into the brain by looking for papilledema. To add to what you said, Amit, it's important to become comfortable doing fundoscopy. I do it on almost every patient. But it's important to learn to look for venous pulsations when you're looking at the disc. So the veins are darker and bigger than the arteries when you're looking at the disc. And if you look at where the veins are either being crossed by an artery or where they're nearing the border of the disc, if you look very carefully, you can see them pulsating. Sometimes it's useful to put your fingers on the patient's arterial pulse on their wrist while you're looking at it, and then you get a good feeling of uh, like a tactile feedback of when the pulsation's occurring. And in raised intracranial pressure, that's the first thing you're going to lose. You're going to lose those venous pulsations. The CSF pressure is going above the venous pressure and you stop seeing pulsation. So that's something that you can train yourself quite easily to look for. Great pearl. Sounds like a lot of us need some practice looking at disc margins and, and venous pulsations. I want to talk more specifically about how these patients present. So Dr. Shaw, can you give us a sense of, of how they present? I mean, I know that they can kind of mimic a subarachnoid hemorrhage presentation. They can be sort of subacute. They can be chronic. They, these can be really tricky. So how would you say, um, I guess you can't say that they typically present in a certain way because it seems they seem to always be sort of atypical. But if you could describe how these patients present, what, what would you say? Well, these patients can often be missed on first visit, so they can have bounce-back visits. They can, When they present with isolated headache initially, it can be challenging to make the diagnosis. They can present with acute sudden-onset headache in some cases. They can present with protracted and progressive headache in other cases. When they do present, their presentation relates in part, as we said, what part of the venous system is clotting and what is near that venous structure. And then to make it more challenging, you can have clots in a variety of veins in the brain, which then gives you scattered neurological deficits. So, you know, you can have clotting in the superior sagittal sinus, which is the most frequently affected site. This can cause hemisensory changes, hemiparesis, hemianopsia, and seizures. You can have transverse sinus thrombosis that can cause temporal parietal infarctions and potentially effects on speech or aphasia. You can have sigmoid sinus involvement, which can actually present with mastoid pain as a presenting feature. You can have deep vein thrombosis in the deep veins of the brain, which can cause thalamic edema, which can cause altered mental status, coma, and you can have cavernous sinus thrombosis that can actually cause chemosis of the eyes. So your eyes will actually have fluid buildup and uh, bulging, proptosis, and oculomotor palsy, so ocular movement changes. So those are all dramatic presentations, but the challenging part of the diagnosis is initially it can just present with 
protracted headache, which can be challenging to diagnose. And then keep in mind also diffuse encephalopathy or elevated intracranial hypertension can cause less focal symptoms, but just uh, nausea, vomiting, headache, and then the papilledema we mentioned. What's been pointed out here is that cerebral venous sinus thrombosis can present with protein manifestations. So I think what's useful is to think about how it doesn't present to contrast it with with other diagnoses on the differential. So therefore, if you go if you look at some very specific symptoms of other headache disorders, that may help you exclude this diagnosis. So for example, if you have a scintillating scotoma with a zigzag flashing lights in your visual field, that's much more likely to be a migraine. If you have purely unilateral pain, as you would with an arterial dissection, that it's going to be more likely to be an arterial dissection than a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, where the head pain is going to be generally more diffuse. These are guideposts. They're not absolute rules. If the headaches are recurrent um, and episodic, that's more likely to be migraine. Again, as Amit pointed out, because migraine is very prevalent, you could have two different kinds of headache. You can be a migraineur and you can still get a venous sinus thrombosis. I think proximity to starting estrogen, um, OCPs, is something to keep in mind, similar to causing DVTs. But I, I think if you're confident in fundoscopy, then that's a as best a test as you can have to exclude this diagnosis when you need to. And I think if you're not confident, you can ask a colleague, can you take another look at this person's fundi for me? Tell me what you think. Can you see venous pulsations or dilate the eyes? All right. So CVT can be pretty sneaky. It can present abruptly like a subarachnoid hemorrhage over a few days or even a few weeks. The pain is usually diffuse, but can be in sort of a variety of locations. There can be a variety of neurologic deficits that don't follow a typical neurologic distribution. They can even present just with a seizure. So this makes our jobs very difficult. This episode is also supported by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially when we're always growing and changing. Self-awareness and self-insight are game changers. When one of my best friends committed suicide at the age of 35 many years ago, it hit me really hard. I needed therapy, but came out of it a new person, making the best of every day and paying more attention to my mental health. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. The therapy I did when my friend committed suicide was fantastic. It really helped me learn some key coping strategies and empowered me to be the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash emcases today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com 
slash emcases. There is another diagnosis that we've been talking about that's actually quite a bit more common than CVT, but shares a lot of its pathophysiologic features, um, and that is idiopathic intracranial hypertension, what used to be known as pseudotumor cerebri. Um, and as we've been saying, really, the key for this one is uh, to look for papilledema. Could you explain to us, Dr. Baskin, how idiopathic intracranial hypertension and cerebral venous thrombosis are on sort of the same spectrum of disease and, and how they actually differ? Sure. Well, one way to think about it is historically, this used to be called benign intracranial hypertension as opposed to malignant intracranial hypertension. And so the distinction, those are historical terms, but the distinction is useful. So with a thrombosis causing raised intracranial pressure, you have a malignant problem. Often it's associated with a prothrombotic state of malignancy, and it it has a malignant outcome and can cause stroke and hemorrhage and seizures and what have you. Benign intracranial hypertension is where there's hypertension in the cerebrospinal fluid, which can cause head pain, pulsatile tinnitus, visual obscurations, but you're not going to end up with a malignant outcome. It doesn't cause strokes. It doesn't cause hemorrhages. It doesn't cause seizures. We no longer use the term benign intracranial hypertension, however, because rarely IIH or pseudotumor cerebri can cause visual loss by compressing the optic nerves. And so that's really the importance of identifying it um, to reduce morbidity. And of course, the patients have headaches, which need to be treated. The other useful way of thinking about this is also from the historical term pseudotumor cerebri. So once upon a time before there was CT and MRI and CTA and CTV, uh, you had to be very good at doing fundoscopy because that was the only way that you would know that there was a space occupying lesion in the cerebrum um, would be by looking for papilledema. And the reason it's called pseudotumor is because eventually these patients were found not to have tumors. I don't know, maybe at autopsy or there's no progression of the disease. You realize they don't have a space-occupying lesion, so they are said to have pseudotumors. They have papilledema, but without a space-occupying or structural lesion in the brain. So I think that's a good way of thinking about how it relates to cerebral um, venous sinus thrombosis. The last thing is the epidemiology might be a bit similar because cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, one of the main risk factors is OCP because IIH, one of the main risk factors is being a woman. Obesity is also a risk factor. There can be an epidemiologic overlap in patients whom you might suspect have this condition, females, younger on OCPs. All right, great. So that gives us uh, a good understanding of how these two entities kind of overlap. And we've talked a bit about how these patients can present. So let's say you have this postpartum patient that we have here. She's got a risk factor. She's got this strange neurologic symptom, and she's got this headache that's unusual for her. Dr. Shaw you had touched upon this a little bit earlier in terms of the role of D-dimer in working up these patients. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what the literature says about the role of D-dimer in working up cerebral venous thrombosis? Because again, if we can avoid doing CT venograms on all these patients, that would be great. Uh, in other words, does D-dimer have the test characteristics that would allow it to rule out a cerebral venous thrombosis? The short answer to that is we think so, but the literature isn't as mature as it is for DVT in uh, venous thromboembolism elsewhere in the body. So D-dimer is definitely elevated more often in patients with CVT. There is research that's supportive of using a D-dimer in a very similar fashion to what we use it in in general venous thromboembolism, meaning that it is sensitive enough that it may have value in the low-risk population. But that literature hasn't matured to the point where that's considered standard of care. So if you are using a D-dimer in that capacity, then you're operating outside of what the current literature would support from high-quality evidence. But the available literature is supportive. So how do we take that in a clinical standpoint when the literature is incomplete and still evolving? I think that's where we incorporate our patients into our decision-making and you incorporate the specific clinical scenario. So to give you an example, in every patient who is young and we're ordering a CT head, we're always balancing the radiation exposure to the brain, the number of CTs they've had in the past, our pretest probability of do they have this disease and their reliability in coming back or following up if we don't do the definitive test for them. So we put all of these factors together and you may say to a patient who might be able to participate and understand your thinking that I can do this test for you. I'm worried about a serious condition like a blood clot in your brain. I think it's unlikely you have that we can either do this blood test, which would reduce our chances of you having that and would make me a little more comfortable, but it wouldn't be the definitive test, which would involve radiation. And so we might pursue that. So I sometimes involve patients and family in that kind of discussion. And and usually if you pick the right patients and have a discussion in simple terms, they appreciate it and they can participate in the decision-making I wanted to mention that we've talked about all these neurological conditions that can have vague presentations and are difficult to diagnose and they don't necessarily follow the textbook. We shouldn't have anxiety over that. What we should think about is it's not our job to diagnose every single condition at the immediate presentation or the first presentation every time. Because if we were doing that, we would be over-testing and over-CTing everybody we saw our emerges would be paralyzed. We'd never want our family members treated by that. So when we, you know, when listeners are listening to these conditions that are somewhat vague, the, what you should take from that is we want these conditions to be on your radar. We just want them to be on your radar. When you start to have people who are bouncing back, having protracted unusual courses, when your spidey sense is tingling that there's something going on, then you now have some extra information to generate a differential. But don't feel that for every patient with a vague headache and some vague symptoms, you need to do every test known to man. But patients appreciate getting the information up front. And I would put the D-dimer into that category where, you know, for one patient, it might be reasonable to do a D-dimer, even though it's a little bit off-label right now because they are really apprehensive about getting radiation. Whereas another patient might be 
older, you may be less concerned about the radiation, and you and the patient may be more comfortable with doing a CT venogram for them once their CT head is normal. So that's how we can incorporate the current literature and a little overview of how to look at these vague conditions that can be tough to diagnose. Well, I think that was just such a great way of explaining so many of the challenges we have in emergency medicine and really helping clinicians decide in general when tests are needed and incorporating patient-centered care. That was fantastic. We did talk about D-dimer in a Journal Jam podcast related to aortic dissections, actually. And one of the points we made back then was just based on a purely evidence-based medicine perspective that when you have a very rare diagnosis, it's almost impossible to have a screening test like that that's going to be able to rule out effectively. And I, I would say that it's probably pretty similar with cerebral venous thrombosis. We know that you can't rule it out with certainty with a D-dimer, but as you say, it may, in some patients, push your pretest probability one way or the other, and uh, it's really up to your clinical judgment at, at that time whether to, to go for the D-dimer. Now, let's talk a little bit more about CT. So let's say you've gotten to the point with this patient that you want some imaging, and you're entertaining, let's say, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and you're also entertaining pituitary apoplexy. You want to get a plain CT. We know that plain CTs have poor sensitivity for cerebral venous thrombosis. If you're lucky, you might see the classic delta sign in the superior sagittal sinus, but plain CT definitely cannot rule out the diagnosis. Then there's LP. Uh, Now, LP can't nail the diagnosis of uh, CTV either, but we do know that the typical finding on LP is elevated opening pressure, which might sway us towards considering the diagnosis a bit higher on our differential. I want to talk a little bit more about LPs when it comes to CVT. Way back in EM cases history, Anil Chopra, who was the former program director at the University of Toronto's uh, five-year emergency medicine program, he gave us his best case ever that was entitled The Importance of Opening Pressure. So Dr. Shaw, why is it important to check opening pressure for, say, the patient in whom you're suspecting a subarachnoid hemorrhage, let's say, and you're doing an LP on? And maybe Dr. Baskin could tell us, you know, how much the op- a high opening pressure would sway you towards a diagnosis of cerebral venous thrombosis. Like, what, what are the test characteristics of that? So let's start with Dr. Shaw. Uh, why is it important to check an opening pressure? I'm going to give you a bit of a contrarian view because, uh, first of all, I don't think that it's important to check an opening pressure in every patient with headache that we see. Although if you look at the textbooks, they do talk about, you know, checking opening pressure, you know, every time you do an LP or at least some of the references talk about that. I don't think that's what's done in uh, practical purposes in emergency departments, though. In many patients that we see, we are not as interested in the opening pressure. And keep in mind that in order to test an opening pressure when you do your LP, you need to have the patient in the decubitus position. And the most common reason people miss an LP or aren't successful in obtaining an LP in the emergency department is because they miss the midline. And the midline is harder to find when the patient's in the decubitus position, particularly if they have a challenging body habitus. So you may decrease your chances of success of the procedure 
by doing the procedure in the decubitus position. And there are times when I don't need to know the al- the opening pressure. And I'll I'll give you an example. If I see a 20-year-old patient who ha- who's febrile and has some neck stiffness and I'm, I am worried about meningitis, I'm not as concerned about the opening pressure in that patient, but I am concerned about getting a tap and actually getting some CSF to make sure they don't have meningitis so I can send them home. If I see a patient who tells me they had a thunderclap headache three days before, but it's much better now, but they give a very good story for new onset thunderclap headache, they have no neurological symptoms, they don't have any significant symptoms now, but they were saw their family doctor and were sent in, it's too late to do a CT and rule out a subarachnoid effectively with a plain CT head, then I'm really just interested in whether that patient has blood or xanthochromia, and I don't need to know the opening pressure. Conversely, people have taken that, I think, in their training to not doing opening pressures in patients to we never need to do an opening pressure. And that's not actually the case either. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension is another diagnosis that you will make in your career if you're looking for it. So we don't see it often, but we see it. And it's generally the patients, as mentioned, that are female, they're of childbearing age, and they tend to have a high BMI. So it's similar to the patients who we think may have gallstones or higher risk of gallbladder attacks, you know? And these are the patients who come in with protracted headaches, and they tend to have multiple ED visits because they just kind of grumble along. And as Roy mentioned, uh, these are the patients who may have some visual disturbances. So they have something called photopsias, which are bright flashes of light in their vision. They can have transient visual obscurations where their vision comes and goes, and they can start to lose peripheral vision as well. So this is the kind of patient who might have had bounce-back visits, has had previous CTs in the eMERGE which have been negative, and then they come and see you, and that's the patient who you want to do the LP in the decubitus position and check their opening pressure. And if their opening pressure is above 20, then that's considered elevated. If you do it when the patient's sitting upright, you have to have the manometer going up above their clavicle, which none of the equipment will allow you to do. So you're not going to be able to do it when when they're sitting upright and you need to do a, a decubitus LP on for that patient. And it can be technically challenging because typically the patients we're concerned about doing an opening pressure for do tend to have a higher BMI and a more challenging body habitus to get the tap. So you may then you know need to get assistance or fluoroscopic guided LP if you can't get it, but those are the patients where the opening pressure is important in my mind, as opposed to all comers. I don't think people do that in eMERGE, even though it's talked about as all comers. I'd love to get Roy's take on that. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Baskin, uh, your comments on which patients we should be putting in lateral decubitus and getting uh, an opening pressure when we do our LPs? Yeah, wonderful. Okay. Yeah, that that was a, a great synopsis. I agree with pretty much everything you said. I think another way of saying it is that every test you do when you do a lumbar puncture, protein, glucose, cell count, uh, AFB for TB, opening pressure is a different test with a different pretest probability, sensitivity, and specificity for different things. The only super useful time to look for opening pressure is if you suspect the patient has IIH. It's a very important number that you're going to get. That's going to dictate the patient's treatment for a long time. So that should be done in a carefully thought out and controlled setting. So when you get the opening pressure and it's high, you know that the patient was lying flat, 
There was no intra-abdominal pressure, no straining, no pain. The physician allowed the manometer um, level to settle. So there you're kind of confirming the diagnosis of IIH. Let's back up a second, though, before you get the lumbar puncture tray and set everything up. Before you do that, you're going to know that you're looking for IIH or pseudotumor cerebri. So I don't think that these two diagnoses, CVT and IIH, are going to be clinically confused. So a patient with IIH who has raised intracranial pressure, it's idiopathic. As Amit said, they usually are younger, female, higher BMI, might be on estrogen. They're going to have chronic headaches or long-term headaches. The reason they grumble along is every time someone takes a CT, it's normal. And they say, oh, you have migraine or don't worry about it. Their headaches are constant as opposed to migraine, which is quite episodic. They have visual obscurations from pressure on the optic nerves that can either be photopsias with little bright lights that whiz across the visual field or scotomatous where they lose little parts of their visual field transiently because of pressure on the optic nerves. And then there's also pressure on, let's just say, the ear nerves. They have pulsatile tinnitus. Their cochlear nerve, vestibular cochlear nerve, is picking up the heartbeat sound. And so they'll have that kind of tinnitus. And so before you take out your lumbar puncture tray, you very carefully check their visual fields. You've done fundoscopy and confirmed that there are signs of papilledema, and you've asked the patient about their headaches, visual changes, pulsatile tinnitus. That's your IIH patient. Your CVST patient or your CVT patient, they have an acute headache, first-time headache, you know, maybe started three days ago. They can have papilledema. They're likely also to have other neurological signs. You do a CT scan, you see some hypodensities because there's ischemic lesions from venous stroke, or you see some hyperdensities from hemorrhage, and you're not going to stick a needle in that person's back unless you're trying to bring down their raised intracranial pressure abruptly. That's a therapeutic maneuver. So in other words, you're very unlikely to do a lumbar puncture on any patient who doesn't have suspicion of meningitis or IIH, and you use your manometer if you're worried about IIH, and I agree with Amit, probably not useful in any other setting, and I agree, just going to get in the way unless you're very used to doing it. All right. What a great discussion. I think we'll probably have some people in the comment section on the blog posts with some alternate views, and I totally welcome those. But I think those are some uh, well-thought-out arguments of who needs an opening pressure with their LP. I, I know you're not supposed to have fun when you do an LP, but checking the pressure is fun. <laughs> it is kind of cool. There's something uh, cool yeah. about watching that column of, of liquid go up. You feel like a real physician. Yeah. <laughs> it it feels almost medieval yes. uh, to see that column go up. It really does. Come practice family medicine in rural Alberta and receive incentives of up to $120,000. Enjoy lower house prices and abundant outdoor experiences. It's called the Reside Program. If you're a family physician who has been in practice for five years or less, see if you qualify for the Reside Program. Go to rpap.ca slash reside. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash R-E-S-I-D-E. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash reside. 
so we've talked about the risk factors for CVT. We've talked about the presentation. We've talked about the overlap with idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and we've talked about how they differ in their presentations. Let's say that we've decided to order a CT venogram on our pregnant postpartum patient, and lo and behold, the CT venogram shows a superior sagittal sinus thrombosis. Let's talk about treatment. Dr. Baskind, what is sort of the general treatment for CVT? Now, you know, of course, it's going to be different if uh, they've then progressed to ischemia and hemorrhage, but let's start with uh, just the patient who you're lucky enough to have picked up the CVT early enough that you just have a venous clot. Yeah, so this is uh, the kind of patient that's going to keep you up at night. So the patient has a venous clot in one of the large veins draining the brain, and you urgently are going to have to anticoagulate them. You do this either with unfractionated heparin or with low molecular weight heparin, the advantage of low molecular weight heparin is you're not going to overshoot the anticoagulation as you might with unfractionated heparin, which is much harder to manage. The direct oral anticoagulants, there's not really good literature on their use. You absolutely would treat the patient for fear of them progressing to you know, stroke or hemorrhagic stroke, ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. And even if the patient has hemorrhagic stroke, and um, this can put the fear of heparin into you, you, you still need to treat them. You, you need to get rid of that clot or, or things will get worse, even if they have hemorrhage. And in general, although it seems counterintuitive, the preponderance of literature and expert opinion and experience is that you don't make people worse when you anticoagulate them for a venous sinus thrombosis. If you're in a tertiary care center and you have interventional radiologists uh, with experience, you can do thrombolysis um, for these cases. That would usually, again, be a second-line treatment after you've started them on heparin. Of course, the second part of treatment is to find out why they have a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And so typically, you'd get an MRI and you would also maybe do body CT to look for malignancy unless there's some clear etiology, like the patient recently started oral contraception, for example. All right. So from an ED perspective, if we do pick one of these up, these patients are going to require probably low molecular weight heparin, regardless of whether they've progressed to stroke, hemorrhagic, or ischemic. And I imagine that pretty much all these patients are going to be admitted. They'll get an MRI and further workup. Correct. Let's switch gears now and go on to another case. A 75-year-old female arrives in your ED with complaints of new-onset gradual generalized headache over two weeks. Review of systems reveals a possible low-grade fever and malaise. She's been stressed out about the pandemic and not sleeping well. There are no localizing features to the headache and no previous history of similar headache. On exam, she looks well, her vitals are all normal, her neck is supple, there's no jolt accentuation of her headache, and her screening neurologic exam does not show any localizing signs. 
this is kind of similar to all the cases we've talked about on these podcasts. These are the ones that are tricky. So Dr. Shaw, what are your general thoughts on this case? What else would you want to know? Well, this is a lady who presents with a gradual generalized headache. So that's taken a bunch of things off of the list, at least. I'm not worried she has a subarachnoid. She has no neurological symptoms in her exam, doesn't show any localization. So I'm happy about those things. The things that I'm concerned about is this new onset headache without prior history. So that's a red flag. And she does describe a low-grade fever. So it brings infection into play, although that's not the only thing that it brings into play, but that's uh, the other initial feature that raises my interest that I need to explore and uh, consider a CNS infection. And Dr. Baskin? So the difference here in this patient and the two cases we discussed previously, the arterial dissection case in the previous episode and the postpartum patient in this episode earlier, is that this is an older patient. So as people get older, their migraines usually get better. They may, they may lose the head pain part of the migraine and just have visual auras, for example. And, um, you know, as you know from your clinical experience, you're much more likely to see younger people coming in with terrible migraines than older people. So when an older patient comes in with a headache, I think the probability of migraine as your diagnosis, which is generally your most common diagnosis for an ED headache, that goes way down and suddenly the possibilities of other causes of headache goes way up. Headaches in older people are much more likely to be concerning than headaches in younger people. Although, as we pointed out, um, headaches in younger people can be dangerous. Any patient who's elderly who comes in with a new headache, you're going to have to consider giant cell arteritis as a concern until proven otherwise because of its uh, potential for causing blindness and also stroke. So you definitely want to work that person up for those. All right, great. Let's continue the case here. So on further questioning, she does complain that she has more trouble than usual getting out of bed in the mornings, and she does say her vision seems a bit blurry. On further examination, her temples are tender with prominent blood vessels. So let's talk about giant cell arteritis some more. I want to talk about the overlap between giant cell arteritis and polymyalgia rheumatica. What is that overlap, Dr. Baskin, and, and what kind of questions do you ask on history for polymyalgia rheumatica? I, I find this one also kind of uh, ends up being a lot of vague symptoms. Do you have any tricks on your history taking and how to elicit symptoms of PMR? PMR affects the proximal, the hip girdle, and the neck, really. You're going to have morning stiffness. The classic clinical findings are pain in the upper arms, in the shoulders, and limited range of shoulder abduction. It's quite debilitating, uh, very painful, and responds amazingly well to steroids. If you've ever seen a patient uh, cured of PMR from steroids, it's quite dramatic. No one really understands what the pathophysiologic overlap is between PMR and GCA. You definitely can have giant cell arteritis without PMR, and you can have PMR without giant cell arteritis. But if you have one or the other, it increases the chances of you having its cousin. All right, great. That's very helpful in terms of figuring out those two. 
Patients with dry cell arteritis rarely present with the classic story of older person with gradual onset headache, jaw claudication, maybe PMR symptoms, constitutional symptoms, low-grade headache that then progresses to vision loss. Dr. Shaw, what are some of the more sort of realistic presentations that we're going to see in the ED of giant cell arteritis? We want to think of this when we see some of the weak and dizzy patients in this older age group and they complain of headache. So the patients that are easier are the ones that have headache listed as their presenting complaint because that focuses you on, okay, I have to think about a headache differential. The harder ones are the ones that come in with weak and dizzy or fever listed as their presenting complaint. And so your brain is naturally not thinking then of your headache differential, but when you tease out their story, they will describe headache as part of their complaint along with malaise. You can have a substantial number of patients with temporal arteritis or giant cell arteritis having low-grade fevers, which can lead you down a garden path of looking for infection. We all know how common asymptomatic bacteriuria is, so you might be thinking that there's a bit of a UTI, but in these patients who complain of headache and malaise, you have to keep that on your differential. The lifetime incidence of giant cell arteritis is one in 100 in women and one in 200 in men. So think about how common that is. That's a tremendously common condition. If untreated, it can progress to visual loss or stroke, as Roy had mentioned. And rarely, it can also be associated with inflammation of your other vessels, causing an arteritis picture even in great vessels. So it can cause complications not just of inflammation and thickening of the temporal artery, but you also have to think about the possibility that there's inflammation elsewhere. So it's people can present with nonspecific symptoms. And the key thing is to just ask about headache, feel the temporal arteries, and consider this as a diagnosis when you're not finding any other diagnosis that's a good explanation. And once again, particularly in the bounce back patients, this is a patient who may be seen by their family doctor or have been into eMERGE and have had nonspecific findings and maybe been treated with some antibiotic for a little bit of urine infection and the culture turned up negative, and then they'll come back again, continuing with vague complaints. But if you tease it out, then you'll get headache as part of their complaint, and you can check their temporal arteries and check their ESR. I guess it's a little bit like the IIH for the older person, you know, in terms of Constant headache, return visits, not much else to find, and a lot of vague things piled on. I do just want to review what the diagnostic criteria are for GCA, and it's three out of five of age of 50 or more, new headache, temporal artery tenderness or decreased pulse, an ESR over 50, or a positive biopsy. And that uh, three out of five criteria would have a sensitivity of 93.5% and a specificity of 91% for the disease. But as you said, they can have very vague symptoms. And realistically, these are patients that we really need to keep on our radar, not only for a headache presentation in an older person, but also in the the weak and dizzy. You know, does this patient have some sort of infection because they might have a low-grade fever? And in the patient who's losing weight and you're thinking, oh, maybe they've got some undiagnosed cancer, you should also be thinking about GCA, especially if they have a headache as well. Dr. Baskin, any, anything to add in terms of the presentation, the realistic presentations of this disease? 
Yeah, I think like a lot of these diagnostic criteria, they're designed by people who are experts um, and have a lot of specific clinical experience in one disease. So I think that most physicians that I know are not going to be comfortable palpating the temporal artery and deciding if they can or can't feel a pulse. And most patients who have a headache, whether it's a migraine or a venous sinus thrombosis, if you go and push on their temples, they're going to say it hurts. So that's to say that I think in an older person with a new headache, you get an ESR and a CRP. And then if they're markedly elevated or significantly elevated, then you really start thinking about whether or not there's giant cell arteritis. You go back to the patient, you re-examine their eyes, you ask about symptoms that we've mentioned, like the constitutional symptoms, the PMR symptoms, jaw claudication, et cetera. I think what you don't want to do is not order an ESR and CRP in an older patient with a headache and miss GCA. That's the real pitfall, I think. So I'd have a low threshold for getting the blood tests in an older patient and always check the eyes, which maybe is the recurring theme in all of these cases, because giant cell arteritis can affect the eyes in all different kinds of ways. It can cause ischemia to the optic nerve. It can cause ischemia to the retina, like a central retinal artery occlusion. You can get infarctions in the visual cortex. So you really have to examine all of those things, like the entire eye, the visual fields, et cetera. From an emergency perspective, do you think it's fair to say that in patients over the age of 50 who come in with a new headache, that they should all just get ESRs and CRPs? Is that that fair? Or do you think that would be kind of overkill? I think over 50 might be a stretch just because it's present in a 51-year-old, but it's pretty darn rare. But I think the older you get, your suspicion has to be higher. And I think the way Roy phrased it, I would agree with that, that if you have an older person, and I guess older to me, given that I'm now over 50, I maybe am thinking (laughs) over 60 is pretty old now. So, (laughs) So, So if you have an older person who presents with a new onset headache, you should at least think about this. And I think where we get lost, there's two areas where people commonly get lost with looking for giant cell arteritis. The one is when people come in with this shopping list of complaints that's so long that you don't just, you don't get to the headache as part of their complaint because they feel miserable and they have all these other things and people are not great historians sometimes. So, you know, you might not get to that. Or if they present with a visual disturbance and you're referring them to your ophthalmologist, but you don't get the story from them that headache is part of that visual disturbance. And then think about, you know, you go down the road of thinking that there's a stroke or you're thinking about something else as a diagnosis there with their visual disturbance, but you don't remember that, okay, giant cell arteritis can actually cause all of these things that Roy mentioned, that it can cause a lot of different visual problems. So when you see someone with a visual deficit, you want to think about that, particularly if they're over the age of 50 and new onset headache and, uh, I think you should at least think about it. I just hesitate to have a blanket statement for everybody over the age of 50, because that's that's kind of young, I think, to set that bar. Fair enough. I, I want to talk a little bit more about ESR and CRP and, and the test characteristics. That'll help us decide when we're going to get this test, and when we do get it back, what to do with the result. 
So Dr. Shaw, could you tell us a little bit about the test characteristics of VSR and CRP for temporal arthritis, the sensitivity, the specificity? You know, what do we do when we get an ESR that comes back at 20? You know, it's obvious what to do when the ESR comes back at 150. What are the test characteristics when it comes to GCA for ESR and CRP? So an, uh, an ESR over 50 would be 90% sensitive for giant cell arteritis, and it's not 100% sensitive. So like anything, you can't rely on it 100%. But if you have a very high clinical suspicion, you can have rare cases where the ESR is less than that in the 40s, for example. And so those patients are appropriate to refer on for biopsy regardless, or at least consideration of biopsy. And CRP is similarly a market elevation of the CRP is also very indicative, but not 100% sensitive. The old thing that we used to remember GCA from is age over 50, ESR over 50. While the age over 50 sounds like it's uh, pretty close to 100%, an ESR over 50 is only 90%. So you certainly can get, let's say, a patient who comes in who's 75 years old, who's got a pretty good story. If their ESR is 40, you still need to keep GCA in your differential and maybe get those patients uh, to someone who can who can biopsy their their artery. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is just to keep in mind that the ESR normals are age dependent. And um, have you guys heard of up to date? <laughs> it's a um, it's this program like a medical database thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know um, whether you're joking or serious. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> no. he was joking. There. <laughs> uh, I think someone told me that physicians these days are just sort of um, uh, living outputs of uh, up-to-date in different locations. But anyway, th- there's a nice uh, um, table in there in up-to-date about um, normal, uh, the, the difference in the reference range for ESR based on age. I do think the bottom line here is older patient, unexplained headache, do an ESR and CRP, and then worry about the results. It's worth mentioning that um, from an emergency standpoint, if you have a high clinical suspicion and you've arranged some follow-up, it's okay to start steroids for that patient. And important too, if you have a high clinical suspicion as the vision can be threatened in, unser- in untreated giant cell arteritis. And th- the initiation of steroids will not affect the biopsy result, i.e. it will not give you a false negative even for the first month. All right, great. Yeah, that was going to be my next question because that question always comes up is, should we start these patients on steroids in the ED before they get their temporal artery biopsy? And it sounds like, yeah, if you have a high pretest probability then yes, go ahead and start them on steroids unless there's some obvious contraindication because that will not affect the temporal artery biopsy results as long as it's done within a few weeks, right? Yeah, so I think the yield of the biopsy is thought to drop after about two weeks. So um, obviously the sooner you get the biopsy, the higher the possibility of getting a positive biopsy on the specimen. 
but it doesn't have to be done within hours or even a day or two. You know, within a week or two is adequate. What about those patients who come to the emergency department with what sounds like GCA, but they also have definite visual symptoms and, you know, definite neurologic deficit? How does that affect their disposition? Should all those patients be admitted? My understanding is that if they already have visual deficits, they should be started on IV steroids, and so they should usually get admitted. What's the thinking there, Dr. Baskin, in terms of which patients can go home on oral steroids and which patients should be admitted on IV steroids? Yeah, I I, I think that's right. I think if the patient's showing signs of ischemia, like to the eye, for example, or a cerebral stroke, then obviously you're going to want to admit them and you're going to expedite your biopsy and expedite your imaging. I think in terms of oral versus IV steroids, glucocorticoids for most conditions, there's a lot of alchemy involved and no one really knows the exact difference in efficacy between different um, steroid preparations. But in general, um, you would use intravenous methylprednisolone if the patient's got active ischemia from giant cell arteritis and they're being admitted. And that's going to be thought to have a, a quicker action and more effective than oral prednisone. Ultimately, they're going to go on to oral prednisone for long-term treatment. Let's do a quick review here of GCA. So the first point that I thought was a really good pearl is that you don't only want to consider GCA in the patient who presents with the chief complaint of headache, but also in the weak and dizzy patient, in the patient who presents with a low-grade fever as their, their chief complaint, or even the patient that you're working up and you're thinking that they're, they might be cancer you know, from weight loss and malaise over months. Keep this diagnosis in that differential diagnosis. The classic patient will have headache and jaw claudication, that is pain on chewing, with some systemic complaints, but they might only have one or two of these things. And remember that fever is quite common in these patients. Up to about half of patients will have a low-grade fever. Some of them can have a high fever as well. The location of the headache is not always the classic temporal headache. This disease is associated with PMR, so ask about GCA symptoms when considering PMR and vice versa. The ESR and CRP are great screening tests for this, but be aware that an ESR above 50 has a 90% sensitivity, so there certainly are patients uh, with ESR under 50 who can have giant cell arteritis. If your suspicion is high for GCA, do start these patients on steroids before they get their biopsy. The steroids will not affect their biopsy, and you can do the biopsy as late as two weeks out, but the earlier the better. Any key points I've missed, gentlemen? I think it's useful to think about headaches in this way. Head pain can be caused by the blood vessels, the cervical arteries, the venous sinuses, and inflammation in the blood vessels from giant cell arteritis, spasm of the vessels from reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, RCVS, and you won't see the vessels on your standard CT head. So that's kind of one way to sort of cover a large amount of territory just in the way that you conceptualize the headaches. And so when you see the patient and they're complaining of a headache, you can say to yourself, is this in the neck? Is it in the head? 
or is it in the blood vessels? And when you think about it that way, you can generate a quick differential diagnosis for problems in the blood vessels, clots, tears, spasms, vasodilation, i.e. migraine, or inflammation, arteritis. Might be helpful. Wow, great great way of approaching it. And Dr. Shaw, any uh, last words of wisdom? Well, we know it's a minefield out there, and headaches is no different than a lot of these you know, diagnostic syndromes that we're faced with. But if you trust your instincts and you keep this list of serious diagnoses and red flag symptoms in mind, that'll give you a lot more confidence in approaching patients and trying to decide, do I pull the trigger on imaging or advanced testing? And that's what we want. And in the patients who are borderline, always keep in mind that discussion with the patient discharge advice that incorporates good advice on what red flag things to watch for, and shared decision-making will help you in uh, dealing with some of these gray cases. All right, so if you haven't guessed already, the four big headache diagnoses that we should consider beyond the plain CT and the LP are neck dissections, CVT, giant cell arteritis, and one we didn't talk about in detail, which is carbon monoxide poisoning. We're not going to go into the details of carbon monoxide poisoning. We'll leave that for another episode. But suffice to say that it's usually quite obvious in a patient who's been a victim in a house fire, but the subtle cases are tricky. But that being said, the simple, easy question to ask if they have an unusual headache is, does anyone else in the household have a headache as well? Um, especially if they have flu-like symptoms with their headache and it's during the cold weather months. Well, that about wraps it up. Thanks so much, Dr. Baskin and Dr. Shaw, for your incredible insights into red flag headaches. I can't wait to pick up my next subtle CVT or neck dissection and save a life or limb. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. 